And uh, if you can get uh, Acts chapter 18 open in front of you, that would be a, a great help. We always have, we have a, a fairly long chunk when we're doing this narrative following Paul on his missionary journey and being able to see the details there. We'll pop stuff on the screen, but it's good to have it there uh, in your, on, on your laps. So Paul has moved on from Athens and now we come to Paul being in Corinth. Let's pray before we look at this together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We are so grateful that you're a speaking God. You've not left us guessing about those essential things, about how you save and what you do in this world. But Lord, we do pray that as we open your word this morning and as we, as we look into it together, Father, please reveal yourself to us. Show us how great and how mighty you are. Any misrepresentations of you that we might be having in our minds, Lord, we pray that you would correct those, uh, that we would see you for who you are, that we'd see your son for who he is, and that our hearts would be full of praise. Help us this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, I wonder what kind of God do you believe in? When Paul's in Athens, and some of you have been doing this in your home groups this week, when Paul's in Athens, he spends a long time really getting to grips and making sure everybody's on the same page, doesn't he, about the God that he is preaching about, the God of the Bible, and how that's different from other concepts of God. Apparently, in our country, most people still, according to a survey that was conducted by, by the, was done for the BBC, most people still believe in God in this country. I mean, that's fairly encouraging, isn't it? But who is the God that they believe in? What is this concept of God that they have? Here are some of the main categories that I've encountered from, from talking with people. First of all, you've got the God who's, who's powerful, but not really all powerful. He does what he can, but sometimes, you know, he doesn't, he just doesn't quite manage. He doesn't always get his way. He's got to constantly engage in some kind of a pitched battle with evil. It's this idea of dualism. That's actually, if you think about it, that's, that's generally the popular God of Hollywood, isn't it? The pitched battle between good and evil. It makes for good viewing, doesn't it, in a movie? You know, if, if God was too omnipotent, too powerful, the, the battles would just be finished in an instant. Actually, funnily enough, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll find that is how quickly battles are over uh, with God, which is fascinating. But, you know, you don't, it, you don't want a God who's too OP, as the young people say it, you know, too Captain Marvel, just way too powerful, everyone's just blown to pieces. Yeah? Well, then you've got, secondly, the God who, who just makes everything. You know, he winds everything up, perhaps like a clockwork sort of system. He sets it all off running, and then this God exits, you know, exits stage left and leaves the whole thing just to run itself. It's an idea called deism. And that God is, is little more than just the origin and the reason for why we're here. But he might as well just be an advanced alien, really, for all intents and purposes. No interaction with mankind. Then there's the God who is powerful and is fully engaged with the human race, but he doesn't, he doesn't really know the future. This is a God who formulates his plans then as he goes along. 
and he acts in response to the unpredictable things that you and I do. Rather than actually knowing and, and, and you know, conforming history to his sovereign plans, this God is rather more like a master chess player, if you think about it that way, playing billions of chess games all at once. With such skill, actually, he plays these chess games with our lives that it gives the appearance that he knows what his opponents are going to do, but it's only really an appearance. Interesting concepts of God, aren't they? And then you have the God of the Bible. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about our God. He says, I, this is God speaking, I make known the end from the beginning. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come. There's a God who just knows everything. I say, my plan will stand and I will do all that I please. That's the God of the Bible, according to Isaiah. This is the God about whom Paul, the Apostle Paul, could write in Ephesians chapter 1. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Works out everything. Is, is this the God that you believe in? One who works out all things in conformity with the purpose of his will. That is quite a God, isn't it? And it's an important question because actually it has massive implications for what God has called us to do. That's why it's relevant to the book of Acts. I mean, just for a moment, put yourself into Paul's shoes. He's nearing the end of his second missionary journey. He's been traveling from town to town and he's been doing what God has called us all to do. And it's had its ups and downs, hasn't it? He's been told, though, to, the disciples have been told to be God's witnesses, to be Christ's witnesses, to make disciples, to preach the gospel to all. Jesus himself has said, look, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And, and like Paul, we have the command and the commission of Jesus, Jesus Christ, our King, to make disciples for him. But also, like Paul, so often our efforts meet with little or no success, don't they? Right? We go, and this is interesting, isn't it? We go with the authority of the king. And it's clear, we're going with kingly, sovereign, universe-ruling authority. And actually, most people, if we're honest, don't want to know. So, you know, we have days like that, don't we? A few Christmases ago, I was, I was talking with a couple of my brothers-in-law. They're both believers. They're at least a decade older than I am. They were both raised in Christian homes. And I grew up looking, you know, looking up to these men. They were faithful followers of Jesus. I still do look up to them. One of them was, was telling us how he was really low. He was a, just a little bit depressed. Uh, and, and the reason was, he said... I don't think, he said to me, I don't think there's a single person who's ever become a Christian because of my witnessing. I, th I think actually that's, that's, that's a bit of an arrogant thing to say, I think, because we just don't know that. But I don't think he was trying to be arrogant. But this is a guy who's been a solid believer for 40 plus years. And my other brother-in-law chimes in and says, yeah, you know, I've seen very little in fruit in my life either. 
Now, like I said, it's a depressing conversation. They're both feeling pretty... I think they were just depressed at the time. But let me ask you, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt that way? What you do has so little effort, what's the point? Like you're having no impact in your witness to the world. Well, if that's the case, and and I suspect for many of us it is, then what's going to keep you and me going in this? Why would we keep going? Is it Is it this that we've looked at already a little bit this morning? Is it that biblical view of God as the one who has supremacy over all things? Is it the belief in in the God, the way scripture declares him, and history also testifies to him, as unchanging? He doesn't change and always keeps his promises. Will that sustain you? The master of history who conforms what happens in the world to fit with his will. Who, Romans 8 tells us, predestines, calls, and justifies those he has foreknown so that they will be glorified. That is quite a statement, isn't it? A God who's so supreme over all the actions of mankind, and get this, we'll see this this morning, that even our evil schemes end up doing his bidding in the end. You know, next week we have Holiday Club. We've we've got some wonderful evangelistic opportunities. We've already got a number of families coming from the estate. And we want more. We want more to come, don't we, to hear the gospel. Why? Because we want them to hear that good news. We want them to encounter Jesus. We want them to be saved. But what's going to motivate us to have a go and to invite people, to bring people, to ask people to come? To get in, what's going to motivate us to get into a conversation again with somebody who you just feel is like a brick wall? It's a fresh look, I hope, at the God of Acts chapter 18 that we have here. So I want you to see three things this morning as we look at this. First thing is that God puts people where he wants them to be. The second thing is that God has unstoppable saving plans. And the third thing is that God works through all things. So first of all, God puts people where he wants them. Take a look at verses 1 to 4. He puts the right people in the right place at the right time. Take a look. After this, so that's after Paul's sermon in the Areopagus and his travelling down to Corinth, uh, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul's left Athens, he's headed on his own down to Corinth. And Corinth was a a major city. Okay, It was a huge trade centre. I mean, you have to picture this. So Corinth has two ports. I mean, that's just bizarre, isn't it? It's got a port either side of it for doing, for doing uh, trade. It's interconnected by this, this canal, which saved hundreds of miles of sea travel going around the bottom part there of Greece. And so as a result, it was a city. It was a huge city. It was a city of hundreds of thousands of people. Funny to think, it was bigger than Athens, in these days. It's a big, big place. Uh, and it was famous for its outspoken pride 
and its outrageous immorality. One, uh, one writer says, describes it as being the Las Vegas uh, of its day. Now, I've never been to Las Vegas. Uh, isn't it called Sin City? Yeah, I think that's probably the idea we're going for here. Sin City. Corinth. And so that's a pretty scary place for a solitary missionary to pitch up, isn't it? Walking around those streets. Paul wrote to the church in this city later on, and he said this, okay? Listen to this. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear <laughs> and with much trembling. You can see why, can't you? The city was also really famous for its street preachers. There's a lot of talk going on on the streets. And they were famous, really, I suppose, histories remember them as being famous, for, for talking a load of nonsense. But in actual fact, they were so good at saying it that everybody loved them and they just wanted to hear them. I guess it's a little bit like the stand-up comic today, isn't it? I mean, they might talk a whole load of nonsense, but boy, it's just it's riveting listening to them, isn't it? It's great fun. And they liked arguments, they liked clever talking. So imagine that culture. Now, usually, Paul would have had his, his mates with him, his wingmen, his fellow missionaries. But this time, he's alone. He's got no friends. He's got no support. He's got no money. But God was with him. And God puts the right people in the right place at the right time. That's the first point we see here, isn't it? So look at what Luke records. He introduces us to a Jewish couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Absolute gems. It seems they're, they're, they're Christians. They're fresh from Rome. The historians tell us actually that there'd been trouble in Rome, the clashes in the synagogues because of Christians and, and Jews debating and the Jews getting angry about the Christians. And because of so much trouble brewing in Rome, the emperor decides, Claudius decides, just to kick a lot of them out, all Jews out of Rome. Okay, it happened a number of times, this sort of thing. And Aquila and his wife had set up shop in Corinth. And they were tent makers, leather workers, just like Paul. So Paul's got two people in exactly the same trade, coming from the same place. They discover him. He discovers them, rather. They welcome him into their home, and he's got a job, and he's got accommodation. It's brilliant, isn't it? Just like that, through a couple of ordinary people, God provides accommodation, friendship, encouragement, and financial support for his servant. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Right in the middle of Sin City. Isn't that a great encouragement? It reminds us that God puts his people, no matter who they are, exactly where he wants them to be. That's an amazing point, isn't it? We actually saw this in the way Paul describes God to the Athenians. Do you remember in the previous chapter? Let me just read a line from what he says. He said, from one man he made every nation of men, God did, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he term, determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's the God Paul preaches. That's the one true God revealed in the Bible. The God who rules situations, your situation. He rules it. So you are in the home that God wants you to be in right now. You're in contact with the people that God wants you to witness to. You're in the church you're in the home group. You're in the friendship group that God has appointed to you so that you might be a blessing to others, just like Priscilla and Aquila. So how's that working out for you, if that's true? You are where you're supposed to be. Many of us 
you know, we have a, and, and our culture is like this, isn't it? Has a predisposition towards wanting to change our circumstances all the time. We want to improve things all the time. We want to move on, to get on, to climb the ladder all the time. But the absolute supremacy of God reminds us there's no accidents, actually, for where you are. You are where you are for a reason, brothers and sisters. God uses all things in the life of a Christian. Every circumstance, every relationship, every difficult trial to change you so you'll be more like Christ, so that you'll bear more fruit for him. Now, don't miss how big this is. A, it means that it dignifies everything that you do. Yeah? Whatever job it is that you're doing, you might feel it's a dead-end job. It's got dignity because it's a place where you can glorify God, where you can live for him, where you can serve him and serve others on his behalf. It dignifies your job. It dignifies what you do with your day if you do it that way. You can live for God just as well doing what you are doing right now as in your dream next thing you want to be. That's one thing. But it also reveals a God who is so supreme over everything. It's like he's written the plot. It's like he's the author of the stories of your or my life. Whilst at the same time, we freely act whatever way we choose to act. Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't entirely understand the way that those two things go together. I don't think anybody does. How can I be free to do as I wish, and yet God is in complete and total control of everything? It's mysterious. But it's also truly awesome, actually. And it's good to think about these things, but at some point, as you think about these things, it's got to make you stop and just say, wow. That's your application, actually, for these truths that you just can't get your head around. They are wow truths. Just worship God for, for them. Truly amazing. The second truly amazing thing about God here is, the second point here, is, is that God's plans to save, God's saving plans, they are unstoppable. They're unstoppable. Have a look at uh, verses, uh, verse 5 down to 8 with me. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptised. Now, up until this point, as we've already noted, Paul's been freelancing, hasn't he? He's been a tent maker. Uh, by evening, probably, or something, or whenever he couldn't speak to people. Uh, and then he's been down at the local synagogue. He's been supporting himself in this work. But Silas and Timothy arrive in town, and as soon as they arrive, Paul's able to go full-time. And so we read in verse 5, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. We've seen this in all the previous towns, haven't we? That's exactly what Paul does. He goes to the synagogue, and that's his message. So day after day, he's arguing 
Jesus is God's promised long-awaited rescuing king. You're waiting for one. You're still waiting, but he's come. Let me prove to you that it was Jesus. That's Paul's message. The saviour king we've been waiting for, he's here. Stop putting your faith in anything else, especially putting it in yourself. Stop trusting that you can keep all of God's laws and be a good person. Instead, put your trust in Jesus, who died for your sins. In other words, repent and believe the good news about Jesus. And it was good news. The Messiah has come. And he brings freedom from the slavery of rule-keeping to justify yourself in God's eyes. But for many, that message was a step too far, wasn't it? We, we've seen this again everywhere Paul's got. And so opposition comes. And Paul does an interesting thing here, doesn't he? He dusts himself off. Interesting. It's like saying, I've got nothing more to do with you. I don't even want the dust from this place on me. I'm out of here. And he declares that now he's going to turn his attention to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, the non-Jews of Corinth. So this might not have been the revival that Paul was hoping for. He was hoping the whole synagogue would be converted, I guess. But verse 8 tells us that many did believe, many were baptised, and including the synagogue ruler, by the way, look, Crispus, and his whole household. And so that small group of people, maybe a fairly large group of people, they actually moved next door, which is an interesting move, isn't it? They parked themselves in the house next door. It's the house of a Gentile named Titius Justice. Now listen, this is a big step for Paul, if you know Paul's heart at all, to turn his back on the Jews and commit to the Gentiles instead in this town. That is not something that, that Paul does lightly. But see, Paul clearly believes that it is God's plan, and God has a plan for who God is going to save. And he clearly believes that God will do this simply through the preaching, the simple preaching of a simple message about Jesus. That's why he's able to declare, isn't it? I am clear of my responsibility. He's done his best. The messenger has delivered his message. He hasn't left anything out. He's argued his case. He's reasoned with all who meet at the synagogue, and now he moves on. I don't know about you, I find that quite a liberating thing, don't you? If God's absolutely supreme over who he's going to save, then all we need to do is simply witness to the truth that we know and then allow God to do the rest. Some people want to argue that you know, the Bible teaching that God chooses, that God plans who he will save, makes telling people the gospel an unnecessary thing. It's not how Paul sees it at all, is it? It doesn't make our witnessing unnecessary. I'd suggest to you it makes our witnessing hopeful, actually, always hopeful. There's a chap called John Alexander, who was a, a long-time university missions worker with the IVCF, the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He once said this. He said, at the beginning of my missionary career... I said that if predestination, God choosing and planning, was true, I could not be a missionary. Now, after 20 years of struggling with the hardness of the human heart, I say I could never be a missionary unless I believed in the doctrine of predestination. And that's exactly what keeps Paul going here, actually, too. 
The next thing that we read about is Paul's vision in verse 9. It's worth looking at. Jesus speaks to Paul and he says this. Do not be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you and no one's going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. Paul, keep going. The synagogue might have closed its doors. Yeah, that, that avenue might have changed. But listen, Paul, I have a large church here. That's literally what he's saying. I have a large church here, so keep preaching the good news. I'm with you. And on the basis of that very encouragement, look at verse 11. So Paul stayed a year and a half. That's a long time for Paul, teaching and preaching the word of God. Now listen, despite the fact that our message sounds foolish, you know, think about it and think about what it is in that culture. God became a man. That's a weird thing to say. He became a man and died to save sinners on a cross. Despite the fact that our message actually can sound offensive to people, you are a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Your best efforts are like filthy rags before God. You need someone to help you do it. You need God to save you. And even though all the odds are logically stacked against us, God will save people through the simple, persistent declaration of his gospel. No tricks, no gimmicks, just preaching that simple message. Why? Why does God choose to do it that way? Well, Paul again wrote to the Corinthians later, and he said this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. This is how God works. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's through that simple, foolish, offensive message that ought not to work, that all the glory goes to God, do you see, instead of me or you. So let that be your confidence. God has a saving plan, and that plan does not require those who are important or strong or wise by the standard of this world to, to enact that plan. All that is needed is a willingness to open your mouth to speak so that you let your light shine before men. Brothers and sisters, please be encouraged by that. And not only that, but finally, in this last section, verses 12 to 17, I want you to see as we finish up here, that God works through all things. You know, staggeringly, really, in this last section, God's will is done through and in spite of man's evil, the evil of mankind. The last scene in Corinth, it appears to be some kind of a footnote when you look at it, it's put there to demonstrate that, that Jesus confirmed what he said to Paul in his vision. No doubt jealous of the growing church next door to the synagogue, the Jews make their move against Paul. I mean, it's going on there all the time, next door, isn't it? But the plot backfires spectacularly. Did you catch it? They get Paul in court before Gallio, the, the proconsul. So it's probably a year or so after Paul's been ministering here. He's in front of Roman top brass, verse 13. This man, they charged, 
is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And Paul's about to defend himself. He's just, just drawn in his breath. But Gallio's sharp, and he just gets right in there, doesn't he? He sees through the plot. It's not Roman law that Paul's breaking. I mean, we don't even know why Gallio says this. He's probably just a lazy man who doesn't want to deal with this. But he says this. If you Jews are making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. you know? In other words, you're wasting my time with this, is what he's saying. This is not my business. Since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle them out of yourselves, out of my court. Get out. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Now, what happens here is actually quite, quite big. Don't miss it. Firstly, Paul now has confirmation again of what he had in his dream. Jesus is going to look after him in Corinth. He's looking after him. Now he's strengthened in the task. But secondly, if you've been following us as we're going through Acts, what usually is the accusation made against Christians when they come preaching? It's usually promoting another king that's not Caesar, right? These are dangerous people. They're promoting a king. It's in competition with Caesar. The, the, this, this plot is intended to destroy the church and to remove Paul. But it, in fact, results in, get it, official legal recognition, at least in Corinth, that this Christian group is legitimate. It's all above board. All the citizens of Corinth can now freely listen to what Paul is preaching. No fear of it being in any way anti-Roman. Gallio's put this out of court. It's just a Jewish matter. So if you're a Gentile, hey, help yourself. You go listen. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? No, no, and to live in fear of the fact that these are insurrectionists. God's supremacy over all things is a tremendous comfort to his people. His will is done even through and despite of the actions of wicked men. Now, this, that, that whole idea always reminds me of, of Tyndale. Do you, know, do you remember Tyndale got, made their first sort of printed Bible in English, Tyndale, really? I don't know if you know the story, but he made a first edition he wasn't particularly happy with. It was a bit rough. He wished he could have made some changes, and he was going to start to work on a second edition of it. But, you know, funds were low. It's really expensive to do this work and to get it printed. But his enemies in England decided what they were going to do because they hated Tyndale, was buy up all of his Bibles and have book burnings. So they bought all of his first editions, bought them all. You know, they, they begged, borrowed and steal to buy, to get the money, to raise the money, to, to burn all of these books. And they made a big burn in your face, Tyndale. And Tyndale just says, well, thank you for the money. Uh, I'll now work on my second edition. And we got the second edition of Tyndale. It's incredible, isn't it? I love that. The enemies of God's people, you see, can shake their fists in frustration, but they cannot thwart God's plans. And Luke, look at how Luke finishes this. Verse 17, they all turned on Sosthenes. Poor old Sosthenes. He's obviously the new synagogue ruler that's replaced the guy that's you know, defaulted and gone next door. And they beat him in front of the court. Gallio shows no concern whatsoever. What kind of God do you believe in? I believe in the sovereign God of the Bible that we see here. He does as he pleases. Just, just flick over to the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Just, check, just take a quick look at it. 1 Corinthians. Just the first verse. We're not going to read the whole book. Paul, 
called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Great, isn't it? I don't know if it's the same Sosthenes. It seems like it probably is, doesn't it? I hope it is. Seems likely. Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth a few years later is addressed from this very man, it seems. Perhaps in his absolute supremacy, God uses a public beating to knock some sense into this man Sosthenes, bringing the total to two former synagogue rulers who are now in the church of Corinth. Certainly sounds like something the sovereign God of the Bible would do, doesn't it? Of course, fulfilling his purposes through the actions of evil men is most clearly seen at the cross, isn't it? Betrayed by his closest friends, wicked, plotted against, murdered by the religious establishment, wicked, evil acts of men. Yet Peter clearly declares in Acts chapter 2, says this, this man Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him on the cross. God purposed, he planned, he foreknew Jesus' death on the cross. In fact, he handed Jesus over, says Luke there, says Peter, handed him over to the Jews who killed him. In that sense, it's correct to say that God willed the death of his son. Yet, at the same time, Luke sees no problem with stating that those responsible for this act of wickedness were the Jewish and Roman authorities who nailed him to the cross. What men planned was evil. But God, in his absolute supremacy, used it, planned it for good. Didn't just use it, planned it, says those verses. And he still does so today. Let your confidence be in this big, sovereign God of the Bible and go and make disciples.